Okay, so we're in Lesson 8. We're going to finish up today. And I want, to, I want to share with you something as we begin Lesson 8. It comes from the last epistle that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy. It's in chapter 3, verse 12. And you may want to write this down because, you know, you maybe have heard me say that suffering is to be a part of our lives as Christians. And you maybe have not liked that thought. Or you maybe thought, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, in fact, if you listen to some of the health and wealth guys, they'll tell you that that's completely wrong. God doesn't want you to suffer, that you don't have enough faith. And if you had enough faith, God would make you healthy and wealthy. And as I look across this room here, if I go by that standard, we're not doing really too good with our faith issues here, are we? Because we're not all healthy and wealthy. We might be healthy, but uh, we're far from being wealthy. But here's what Paul says, and I think this is very interesting. And this is being written by a man who is in prison, who is facing death. And this is the apostle writing. And notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 3 of of 2 Timothy, and yes, all who desire to live godly lives will suffer persecution. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Is there any wiggle room there? What does all mean there? I had a, I had a professor in school that used to say, all means all, and that's all all means. And, and that's reality. So every one of us, if we're going to follow Jesus, and if we're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, so if you're pursuing a godly Christian life, now think about that. If you're going to pursue a godly Christian life, what's he saying is going to happen? You're going to suffer. So the implication is, is that if you're not living a godly Christian life, you're just blending in with who? Yeah, you're just blending in with everybody else. There's nothing about you that's going to stand out and they really don't have any reason to be upset with you. So the reality is, is that we are going to suffer for our faith. Suffering is going to take place. Now, it may not be like what the Apostle Paul faced. It may not be like our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing death and torture for their faith. But it may be very subtle. It may be rejection in a family. It may be uh, rejection at work. It may be mocking. It may be scoffing. Uh, it may be just little things that are said. But the reality is, is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are living a godly life, you're going to suffer for your faith. So you need to mark that down in your mind. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. I mean, it just comes right out and says that if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer for your faith, period. And that's the apostle writing. So... Here's where we're at. We're in Lesson 8. We're going to look at, finish up this whole aspect of suffering today. Last week we looked at the proper attitude that you and I should have in suffering. And then we got into the proper conduct. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to start with the proper conduct. So the first thing I want you to do is look with me at verse 4 through 11. We're going to talk about our conduct in this time of dealing with suffering. Notice with me what he says. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. B. 
be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belong the, the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so let's look at here. First of all, a proper perspective. The proper perspective is, is we're to place all things in proper perspective. You and I have to, as you live your life, you and I have to have our minds in a right frame of mind as far as what this life is. And, and, and what's he, especially with Peter, his proper perspective that he's trying to convey to us in our letter is, is that we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're here temporarily. Don't get too comfortable here. In fact, he's just talking to us about the whole issue of suffering. Are you and I going to get comfortable in an atmosphere of suffering? No. So he wants us to keep everything in perspective, especially when it comes to the issue of suffering. The issue of suffering is only, what? Temporary. It's only for the moment. Well, you say, well, it could last a long time. Well, it can only last as long as you're alive or, you're, or until Jesus comes back. Because if you know Christ and you're following Christ, the moment you leave this world, what begins? Eternity with Him. It's going to be so much better when we're with Christ than it is here. And the suffering will be only for the moment. Now, why will the suffering be only for a moment? Because we know from the passages in the Scripture, especially when you go to Revelation, it says very clearly that the wicked will not be where? In the kingdom. What is the source of suffering? The wicked. See, you and I have to keep things in proper perspective. Here's another proper perspective. In, in the letters to the uh, churches, the seven churches there, it's interesting. One of the letters was written to a church that was undergoing severe persecution. And it says that when they will overcome, it says that their enemies will come and bow down and recognize them in that day. You said, now what does that have to do with suffering? The source of suffering for a believer's life are unbelievers, this world. In that day when we go to be with Jesus, our suffering is going to cease, and those who made us suffer are going to have to acknowledge that we were the part of Christ. We belong to Christ, and they're going to have to acknowledge what they did wrong. Isn't that interesting? It's a divine retribution. See, one of the things that we have a hard time with right now is, who's going to make this all right? When you're watching the news and you see all the injustice, or when you see somebody who, you know, who, I mean, all the evidence is pointing to the fact that he needs to go to jail and then he gets off and you're like, where's the justice? We've seen that over the years, haven't we? And, and you sit there and say, where's the justice? And, and especially for you and I, our tendency is to take justice into our own hands and to wreak havoc on others who hurt us. We've got to have a proper perspective that there is going to be a divine retribution. And for the Christian, I leave what happens to me in the hands of God and knowing that he's going to sort it out later. That's the proper perspective we have to have. And that's difficult, isn't it? How many of you would say that's pretty easy to have? No, because it goes against the grain, doesn't it? But here's the thing. How do I gain that proper perspective? Communion with the Lord. Talking with Him about it. Forgiveness is another one. 
Listen, think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus, when he was there, they beat him, scourged him, mocked him, put him on a cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them for they what? Don't know what they do. Think about Stephen, the first martyr. While he's being stoned, what does he do? Same thing. Now, how does he do that? How can they do that? Because that's almost unhuman, isn't it? It's almost unhuman for somebody like Stephen to do that. How does he do that? The grace of God, which I think ultimately comes from the Spirit of God, who enables us to do that. See, the key for you and I to have a proper perspective is to rely upon the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, we ignore him. You know, it's very distressing to me as a pastor who teaches to come to a place where I read statistics that tell me that 46% of those who call themselves evangelicals don't even believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's scary. Now, why, why would that be scary? Well, here's the thing. Jesus says this. I'm going away, and when, while I'm gone, I'm going to send to you another comforter. And he's going to do these things for you. He's going to convince you of truth or convict you of truth. The word is both the same. He's going to guide you into truth. He's going to be there as he's going to come alongside of you, is what the word means, as somebody who walks with you. He's going to be like me, except I'm no longer going to be here. And so he is the one that God, that Jesus is sending to be with us while he's away. And then we don't even believe in him. Is it any wonder we have failure in our Christian lives? Because we don't even acknowledge him. And there's a whole lot of reasons why we don't acknowledge him in our lives. Let me just stop for a moment. Here's some of the reasons why. We have, for instance, been scared by the whole charismatic thing. We don't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit because we're so afraid that something weird might happen to us. We want to be in control of ourselves and we have dignity and we sure don't want to be acting like that. So we just won't talk about him. Well, here's the problem. You don't talk about him. You don't teach about him you might get to the place where you don't even believe he's around. The other thing is that, not just that, we have grieved him so much in our lives with our sin by not being obedient to what he tells us, we, we really don't see him working in our lives. So, Holy Spirit, maybe there isn't one. See, this is all part of having the proper perspective. If I'm going to respond to suffering, I need to have a proper perspective about things. Number one, I need a proper perspective of how things are going to end up. I need to have a proper perspective of how God has equipped me right now. And the greatest equipment that he has given you is himself in the person of what? The Holy Spirit. So, let's go on there. We're to place all things in proper perspective. So, you've got to put all things. That's even what you're going through in proper perspective. And then he goes on and he says this. We ought to recognize that we're approaching the end of time. We're to recognize that we're approaching the end of time. Now, let me just stop for a moment. The, the, the scoffer would say, well, you know, hey, George, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. What are you waiting for? Well, let me just stop for a moment. You don't understand. Here's what you don't understand about it. When we are told to wait for the coming, and when we're told to have a mindset for the coming and recognizing that it's the end of time, you and I are not told when he's to come back. We're just told to be ready. And isn't it interesting? I'm going to stop for a moment. How it's illustrated in the New Testament about his coming. It's often illustrated in terms of a bridegroom coming for his bride. Now, here's what happens. We tend to read things in the Bible from our cultural perspective. 
And so we tend to think in terms of wedding ceremonies here. Set day, set time, boom, at, if it's at 2 o'clock, the music starts, the gals come marching down, you know, and here he is, and, 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 and he's waiting for her to come. And we think in terms of that as far as our American weddings. Now, that is not how it happened back then in Palestine. It's completely different. There would be a betrothal process in which you were betrothed, that is like the engagement. And that's what Jesus has done with us. We are betrothed to him as the church. You understand? And at some point, as the bridegroom makes himself ready, and typically what that meant was is he prepared a home somewhere. Okay, so he had to build a house, get ready in that sense. And then when he was ready, he would come with his procession, usually his family and his friends, and you as the bride as the bride would need to be ready for when he comes, whenever that time is, because you don't have a he doesn't say two o'clock next week, sweetie. You're living in anticipation of when he comes. You say, Well, there's not an awful lot of planning going on there. As the bride, you didn't have to worry about the planning. It was the bridegroom who had to do the planning. He's the one who had the marriage feast ready. He would come for her. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't that just relieve a lot of women with a lot of stress? Not really. I'll tell you why. Because you're saying, I don't know that I trust him. But listen, here's what I want you to see. The picture is, the bridegroom comes, so you have to be ready because you don't know when he's going to be ready to come get you. And see, we think in terms of 2,000 years. What does Peter say? Later he'll say the same passage. A day is a 1,000 years unto the Lord, a 1,000 years is a day. Time doesn't matter to him. The issue is you being ready. And let's just stop for a moment. You say, well, what if he doesn't come while I'm alive? There's still a reason for being ready. What do you mean? You don't know when you're going to die. You know, the great theologian, Jonathan Edwards, had several resolutions that he made in his life. And one resolution that he made was that he would never do anything that in the last hour of his life that would bring shame to himself or Christ. Because you don't know when the last hour of your life is going to be. So, really, we're to recognize that we're approaching the end. We're approaching the time when Christ is returning. It's moving there. You understand? It's moving there. May not be moving at the McDonald's speed, you know, the drive-through speed. Let's get it done and get it over with. But it's going, it's moving there. Do you understand what I'm saying? And everything is, is, is all part of the process. We've got to keep things in proper perspective. We've got to keep things in proper perspective. We're sojourners. And the end of time is coming. So that's my conduct here. Part of it is that I need to recognize the approach of the end of time. So here's the thing then. So this leads into the next thing he talks about here. Look at what he says there in verse 7. So because of this, look at what he says. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, I want you to notice something. There's two attitudes that he's saying that you and I need to have in prayer then. As I'm going through the issue of suffering... As I'm keeping everything in proper perspective, as I'm recognizing it's the end of time, I need to have two different attitudes in my prayer life. And here's the attitudes I need to have. Number one, I need to be serious in my prayer life. Isn't it easy for us not to be serious? Let's be honest, isn't it? If you think about the stuff that we pray about, Lord, the corn on my toe today is just hurting so bad. We laugh, but isn't that the kind of things that we pray about? I gave a ridiculous illustration there, but I'm just being very serious that the reality is that some of the things that we pray about are trivial. 
You know, I hear people all the time, they say, I'm going down to Clearfield today. Jesus, give me a parking place. Really? If you know what I'm saying? That's trivial, isn't it? That, that's so trivial that we would talk to the God of the universe about helping us find a parking place. But listen, when you've got a mindset where you understand you've got everything in proper perspective and you're recognizing the end is coming, you're going to have a different attitude in your prayer life. And you're going to be watchful in your prayer life. You're going to be watchful. Now, what am I watching for? We just talked about it. His return. His return. You know, I, I listen to a lot of different pastors. One of the pastors I listen to a lot is a guy by the name of John Piper, and I was listening to him talking about fasting. And then he, he this is what he does. I thought this was interesting. I've never heard anybody do this before, but he does it at their church. Once a week, they skip lunch. They fast their lunch and devote that hour of lunch to praying for the return of Jesus Christ. And how he gets it is from the Gospels. When, when the, the, the Pharisees and the, you know, the, the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, why don't, you, why, aren't your, why don't your disciples fast? And he said, well, while they, have the, while they have the bridegroom, they don't need to fast. But when he's away, they will fast for his return. So what he does is he... He lives his life in a watchful attitude, seeking and wanting who to come back? Jesus to come back. See, this is what I'm talking about. So am I advocating that you give up a lunch a week? No, not necessarily. But what I'm advocating is, is that you look at your prayer life and decide, am I serious in my prayer life? Am I really serious? Here, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about as far as seriousness. I told you I've been a believer now 24 years. I have family members who don't know Jesus Christ. I have lost family members who don't know Jesus Christ. Immediate family members who don't know Jesus Christ. And it gets, it's really easy when you're praying for folks to get saved, to come to faith, that as the years pass by, you could actually go days without praying for them. You ever notice that? Am I the only one who, you know, have you noticed that? It's because we just get, we, there's any number of reasons why. The problem is, is we don't begin. To, we begin not to take it seriously anymore. You know what I'm saying? We have a hope, but it's kind of a faint hope. See, if I'm going to be serious in my walk with Jesus, and if I'm going to be serious in my perspective of what's happening around me, and I, I'm going to be serious in my prayer life, I've got to start taking it very serious that the people that I know, that I love, and that I interact with, who don't know Jesus, they need to come to Jesus. I'm, it's going to be reflected in what? My prayers. And it's gotten to the point with me where it's like, Lord, only you can open their eyes. You've got to open their eyes, Lord. Because he's, what does he say? He says in Corinthians, Paul says in Corinthians that our gospel is not veiled. It's not something secret. It's not something mysterious that people can't understand. The fact is, is that their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. Who's that Satan? So I've got to pray for them what? To have their eyes open. So the attitude I'm going to have in prayer, especially in the midst of suffering, is, Lord, I'm going to be serious about my prayers, and I'm going to be watchful for him to come. That, that should convict every one of us here about our prayer life. We shouldn't trivialize it. Let's go on then. So he's going to talk about love. Here's the other attitude. We need to be marked by an unconditional love towards each other. This is especially true for a community of people who are going to undergo suffering as the world presses pressure on them because of what they believe and wants them to conform, 
You need to have somewhere a group of people that you can go to who hold to what you hold to, but you know that even though the world may not show love to you, you can go there and be loved. See, this is, I can be honest with you, I think this is the dimension of church that we're missing today in North America, is the loving community aspect. You say, well, I feel pretty loved. You know, I'm involved in a grace group, and, you know, I feel like I'm connected. Well, that's part of it. You got connected. You decided to get connected with people. And you know that love because you are connected, and you know that when I go through a problem, I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm going through a problem. Pray for me. And you know they're praying for you because you connected with them. But you know what? We only have half the people in our church connected in anything. We only have half the people connected in anything. Only half the people go to a Bible study and connect with each other. The rest of them are just spectators. And so they're missing the whole dynamic of love. And so the proper attitude for me to have, especially in a world that is antagonistic towards my faith, is I've got to express unconditional love. Now, what does unconditional mean? What does unconditional mean? Yeah, without condition. Thanks, Bruce. So, you know what? So, listen. Okay, Bruce spoke up, so I'll use him. Okay, as an illustration. He's an Eagles fan. And you ever notice... He seems to have a lot of eagle shirts. He wears them to church all the time. You're not wearing one today. That's good, Bruce. Okay. But here's the thing. You know, some diehard Steeler fan. Are you going to spend time with him? He's a he's a Philly fan. You know, that that's the whole attitude. Now that's not for him. We're, we're laughing about the sports thing, but I'm not going to talk to him because I don't like the way he's dressed. I don't I'm not going to talk to him because he's on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. I'm not going to talk to him because I don't like this color of his skin. I'm not going to talk to him because he's Italian. Believe me, I've been here. I know that that kind of stuff talk you hear about those. Those are Italians. You know? Watch out for those Italians. If i got any Italians here, I'm sorry. I don't want to offend you. But that's the attitude sometimes. Or I don't want to talk to them because, you know, they're in management. Or I don't want to talk to him because... He's on welfare. See, we have conditions in which we accept people, do we not? Does every one of us recognize that you have conditions in which, as, as why you accept people? You know, because you know, I could say you have prejudices, and immediately you just associate that with race and color. But the fact of the matter is, it maybe has nothing to do with color. It may be as if you're pushing your cart at Walmart, and you see that guy who's got his whole body tattooed and studs hanging out everywhere... But see, you and I have conditions, and we have been conditioned by our families, by our backgrounds, by our attitudes, by everything, as far as who we will accept. Now, the problem is, is in a church, you can't be conditional. In a church, you have to be unconditional, because, listen to me, my friends, he was unconditional with you. You say, what do you mean? Here's the reality. In the Old Testament, what was our lot here? What was our destiny in the Old Testament? No. Why? Gentiles, and we were not part of the what? We were not part of the promise. The promise had nothing to do with us. Did we have any hope? Listen, in fact, if you go through the book of Acts, this is the big struggle in the church in the book of Acts, is the whole issue of Gentiles coming to faith and the fact that they want them to become like, this is what the Judaizers were doing, they wanted them to become Jewish. And the whole acceptance issue was a problem there. So here's what I want you to understand what I'm saying. So listen to me. 
So Jesus comes. The law had no acceptance of you. Jesus comes and he expresses unconditional acceptance. He didn't have to. Where would we be if he didn't express unconditional acceptance? We'd be lost. We'd have no hope. See, this is what I want you to see. Our example is Jesus, so therefore I must express unconditional acceptance of who? Everyone here. One of the biggest struggles that I had, this happened to me about four or five years ago here while I was pastoring here, is I had to, I had to wrestle with this concept of why am I a pastor? So, well, you don't have that figured out? No, you've got to understand something. This is a different level than just knowing what your calling is. Because here was the question in my mind. My task as a pastor, is it to make people white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, middle-class Protestants? Is that my task? My task is to make people Christ followers. Period. Now, how, why did I have to wrestle with that? Because I was dealing with people at the time, and still continually do, who do not hold the same values that I hold to, as far as my middle class values, who are never going to hold my middle class values, who are always going to be entrenched in their culture, their subculture, what is my task? To make them become like me? No. My task is to make them become Christ followers. Does he, is he concerned about my middle class values, Jesus? No. He's just concerned about them following him. That's reality. That's reality. And so I had to wrestle with that. So guess what now? I had to come to the place where I had to be unconditional because, listen, before it would have been easy for me to write people off. Oh, they express an interest in Jesus, but I sure don't see any change in the way their attitude is towards work. Like, work attitude, does that have anything to do with Jesus? No. I noticed that they didn't change their political framework and thinking. Doesn't have anything to do with it either. See, we've got to be unconditional. Let's go on. We are to be, we are to willingly be hospitable to those in need without complaining. So the other thing is, is I need to be available to those who are in need and don't grumble and complain about it. Church, we have somebody here today, we won't say who it is, but they got a really big need. And what we need is, we're going to pass the offering plate today because they're really in a big need today. And we really want you, out of the, out of the gen- hospitality of your heart, if you want to help them, just put something in the plate. And here's what you'll do. You'll, you'll reach in your back pocket and say, oh, I'll do that. And you'll do it because you know that others are looking at you, but inside your heart are going, I don't really need this right now. I had plans for that 20 bucks. I'm going out to eat afterwards. Is that being hospitable? That's religion. The reality is is that, remember now, we're talking about the context of suffering. As we face suffering, people are going to face needs. Now let me just stop for a moment. Here's what I want you to understand. In their context of suffering, it was a little bit different than our context of suffering. Their property might be taken by the authorities. They may lose their home. They may lose everything. They may be out in the street. So hospita- being hospitable of what Peter is talking about here is that you open up your house to let a family come in. 
And you don't grumble about it. Well, let Bertha and her six kids come in here. Man, it ain't been the same ever since. You know what I'm saying? It, that, that's wrong. He's calling us to be different. This is what he's calling us to. Are you wanting to be that kind of person? Listen, the most hospitality that you might have to show to anybody here, listen to me, is maybe having somebody over for a dinner. Isn't that what we've reduced hospitality down to these days? Well, I'm not sure about that one. See, remember what I said, the attitude with the whole issue of suffering is the difference between selflessness and selfishness. And a lot of our thinking is guided by what? Selfishness. See, you can't be selfish when you're in a context where you are suffering for the faith. Let's go on. We are to be faithful stewards of the spiritual gifts that God has entrusted us with. Look with me, verse 10 through 11. Notice what he says there. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God. That's verse 11. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the reason, so you and I, God has given you, God has given you abilities, stewardship, resources for you to be faithful stewards over. And look at verse 10. I, I, I skipped verse 10, but I should have been there. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as God has blessed you, you be a blessing to others. Now here's the biblical principle. Listen to me. God gives you what He gives you, not for yourself. It's not for you. He gives you what He gives you so that you can use what He's given you for the benefit of others around you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, that sounds like Jesus doesn't want me to have fun. My friends, you're missing the boat. That's not the issue. He doesn't want, it's not that he doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to be so focused on yourself that you don't have any room for anybody else. And you need to be there for other people. Okay, let's, let's look. So here's the reason why. These actions on our part will result in God being glorified. Here's what's going on. These actions, if I do these things, especially if I give as He has given me resources, who gets the glory? Because what you're doing is unreal. What you're doing is so anti-cultural. What you're doing is so anti-selfishness. It's going to be selfless. Who gets the glory for it? God, especially if you're in a community where suffering is happening. God gets the glory. All right, let's go on. Look with me at verse 12 through 19. We're going to talk about enduring now. Because when you talk about the issue of suffering, you've got to endure it. So look with me. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's suffering that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
And on their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let not none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay, let's look here. First of all, grasping reality. We're to come to grips with the reality that we will suffer. What's he saying here? Guys, don't be surprised by fiery trials. Have you noticed that we get surprised? Like for me, you know what? I drove in here to, on uh, Friday morning, drove my van in there. You probably were wondering, why did he park that way this morning? Well, I'll tell you why in a moment. And somebody called and said, hey, let's do lunch. And so I went to lunch with him. He picked me up, so my van stayed there. I'm getting ready to go home. And uh, I get in the van, crank it up. Chugs right out. Crank it again. Chugs right out. Crank it again. Chugs right out. It's not working. I don't need this right now. I'm going away on a trip today. Lori needs the van. I'm taking the truck. What's going on? And I'm surprised. Like, bad things happened to me. Why? But guess what? It's got 170,000 miles on it. Something's going to wear out, isn't it? And it doesn't tell you, we're about to wear out. It's just part of what? Life. See, if you're going to, you got to have, listen, if you're going to have proper endurance, you've got to come to grips with the reality that we will suffer. And you know what? I'll get through this problem. Guess what? There'll be another one when? Soon, sometime. I don't know when, because we don't know. But there will be another problem. Here's the other thing. We have joy when we recognize the privilege of suffering as Jesus did. We have joy when you recognize the privilege of suffering as Jesus did. So when you get persecuted for your faith, and you endure ridicule for your faith, you have the joy of knowing that you suffered as Jesus did. Now, here's the thing. Here's the blessing. When we suffer for our faith, we will be blessed because God is glorified. God is glorified through our suffering. Now, here's the thing. Verse 15, he tells us, he gives us a warning now. Here's the warning. And, and this is a good one to keep because you could, you, know, you could say, oh, man. Peter warns believers not to suffer because of their sinful behavior. Isn't that interesting? Notice what he says here. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. And what's the last one there? Look with me, verse 15. What's the last one there? Busybody. What is that? A gossip. Now, I thought about that. Why? Do gossips suffer? You better believe it, they do. Have you noticed how you talk about people who gossip? How do you feel about people who gossip? Let's be honest. You don't. You maybe bite your lip around it. Busybody. So he's saying, don't suffer because of your bad behavior. Because you could say, well, 
I'm suffering for Jesus. But it had nothing to do with Jesus. It had to do with you. Let's go on then. Here's the proper attitude. We should not be ashamed because of our, because of our suffering, but rather have joy. So a lot of times we feel shameful about the fact that we're suffering, that we're enduring what we're enduring. But we don't need to. We don't need to be ashamed about it at all. So then notice God's discipline. Suffering purifies the lives of God's people. Believe me, suffering will purify your life. Suffering will reveal to you attitudes and sins that need to be dealt with. Because then notice something. Peter points out that the lost will face greater disciplinary action. See, here's the perspective. Remember I told you it's either suffer now or suffer later. Suffer later is if you don't trust in him. Now you must endure and be purified, but later you don't have to worry about it. Those who are the ones causing you to suffer will face disciplinary action later. So here's the thing. Here's the commitment we're called to. Those who suffer must commit their lives to the Creator through their actions. You've got to commit your life to Christ in the midst of what you're going through. Now, how do I, how do I express my commitment to Christ through my what? Actions. It's going to be reflected in how you live. All right, next week we're going to talk about responsibilities in the new birth. Uh, we're going to talk about leaders next week, what responsibilities Peter says leaders have. And uh, so we're going to look at it next week. So let's close our time in prayer and we'll get ready for the morning worship service.